Right on. Well, we, uh, hey, do you remember a couple years ago when we did, uh, uh, my, Jonah was playing in that hockey tournament and a whole whack load of you guys came up and watched the final game after Sunday and went down to a shootout and it was all awesome. So we've had the same tournament this weekend and Eli's playing in it in this morning. They're playing right now. I'm the head coach. I said I won't be there. And uh, they're, <laughs> they're, uh, they're battling for uh, 15th or 16th out of 16 right now. So, you know. Anyways, it's been an interesting weekend. Um, Jonah's been reffing all, all weekend long, and um, there was one particular team where the coaches were just, just going to share my heart, the coaches are just totally haywire to the point where uh, they were removed from a building. And um, my son was reffing the game, and they said stuff to him as a 14-year-old that I wouldn't repeat. And so last night, you know, going to bed, I was, c- was kind of cranked up, man. I had a hard time sleeping, and then I woke up at 4.30, and I was scheming murder <laughs> and all sorts of things, and we laugh, but I'm serious. <laughs> and so I thought, Lord, what the heck, man? I got to get in the pulpit and preach, and I'm thinking about killing people today. <laughs> Isn't that how all our hearts are, though, Right? That's all of us, and that's why I know I can share that, because I know you think about killing people sometimes, too. (laughs) So, thank you, Jesus, for saving us murderous sinners. Amen. Um, Hey, a couple updates. Uh, First one is this, is Melissa had some scans, finished some of her treatments. They they found a, a new mass. It's a new mass or an old mass? Something in her neck, four centimeters. And uh, so we just need to pray. These next two weeks are pretty crucial. Okay, we want to lift up Melissa. Um, Neil sent an email this morning. Uh, him and Deb wouldn't be here. We know that he's just finished up his treatment too. Some of his stuff he said that's in his neck that he could feel and, and different spots have disappeared. Um, so praise the Lord for that. He's got some follow-up stuff this week. And what they're trying to assess is if his heart can handle stem cell stuff. And so he just asked for prayer in regards to that. And then we, we also want to pray for Ernie and Emery's son, Alan, who's in the hospital. If you're on the prayer chain, you'll be getting stuff for that. And uh, they've been able to stop internal bleeding. And he, he was in a coma this week, and they said, look, if he comes out of the coma and the bleeding starts, there, there's really nothing we can do. And they've been able to stop it, and they brought him to this morning, and he opened his eyes. And so praise God for answered prayer. And Andrew, am I okay to... Yeah. And Barbara's in the hospital in Seashell with a kidney infection. And so we want to just lift her up too. Um, Andrew had to leave our home group early on on Wednesday night and uh, go get his wife and take her to the hospital. And so let's just lift those things up, okay? And uh, bring them to the Lord and bring bring our murderous hearts to God (laughs) and uh, all these things. Lord Jesus, I thank you. You're a savior. You are a savior. And you saved us, Lord. We're counting on your name, Jesus. We're counting on the work of the cross. And I thank you, Jesus, that we're going to see in this text this morning that you came teaching, preaching, and healing. You authenticated the message of the gospel by your power to heal. And God, we, we know that you are a God who heals. We have watched that and experienced it. Some of us know it in our own lives. And God, I thank you for the way we've seen you touch Kevin over these last months. And God, we've been trusting you to touch Melissa and to touch Neil. And so God, we ask that again in the name of Jesus. 
that God, that you would be the physician that comes and, and gives them what they need, Lord. And so we pray for Melissa, Lord. I just pray, God, that you would come and you would strengthen her in her heart, Lord, and in her mind, that you would gather around all of their family and that they would just continue to hope in you, Lord. And we, we, we ask, Lord, for you to work a miracle on her behalf, Jesus. And so, God, over these next two weeks, I, I pray that you would keep Melissa on our hearts and minds, Lord, and that we would continue to lift her up to you. We pray for Neil this morning, God, and we ask that, that as uh, he undergoes the end of his treatment here and they check to see where he's at, Lord, we just pray that that cancer would be gone. We pray, God, that, that his heart would be strong enough to be able to uh, handle some of the next things they want to do. And, and so, God, we ask you to be with him this morning to touch him, Lord. I pray for Barbara and Seashell, God, I just pray that you'd meet her in that hospital room right now with your presence, Lord, with your power, God. We pray that um, the stuff that she's taken to battle that infection would take hold in her body, Lord, and that you'd just drive it out. And Lord, I pray that your presence would just be upon her life, God, that people would see Jesus in that lady as she's in that hospital today. And God, we pray for Alan. We thank you, Lord, just for preserving his life this week. We thank you, Lord, that in the middle of this week, things look pretty grim, and this morning he's opened his eyes. And so, God, we give you glory for that. We thank you, God, that you've preserved them because you're not done with them. And so, Lord, I, I pray for Alan, God, just for healing, for freedom. Uh, Lord, that his relationship would, with you would just be awakened, God. If he hasn't settled accounts with you, God, I pray that he would do so. And, Lord, we just lift him up to you. And so, God, we bring all these things to you and things that are unspoken that we haven't shared, Lord. Uh, you know our needs, God. And we bring those things before you this morning. We lay them before you. And we thank you, Lord, for your salvation. Lord, I thank you for your word as we come to it this morning. I thank you, Lord, that it says in, in the Psalm 138 that you have exalted above all things your name and your word. And so, God, we want to give your name and your word its proper place this morning, and that's to lift it up, to hold it high. It's the authority. I'm not. We're not. You are, Jesus. Your word is. And so, God, we pray that our lives would be conformed into the image of Christ this morning. We pray that, God, that you would bring victory in our lives. We pray, God, that you would bring encouragement and hope, that you would bring correction and rebuke if we need it this morning. And God, we ask for just the empowerment of your spirit as the word is taught this morning, God, that your spirit would help. We give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew chapter 4. We've been cruising through, just getting rolling here in Matthew. And next week we're going to get to that famous section, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Looking forward to that. Uh, as we come here to uh, Matthew chapter 4, we are coming from that holy, high, awesome experience at the Jordan where Jesus was baptized. Um, we saw that the heavens were opened, that the Spirit of God descended upon him in the form of a dove, that God spoke, the Father spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved Son, with him I am well pleased. The Father's approval. And Need in that whole picture is right there early in the gospel is the picture of the Son, the Spirit, and the Father all involved at Jesus' baptism. And now we come from that 
blessing at the Jordan River, the Spirit has come upon Jesus and empowered him uh, for ministry. And we come to this uh, temptation. But just before we get there, you know, thinking about the empowerment of the Spirit, how we need that. The Spirit lives in us. He dwells in us. When we invite Jesus Christ to be our Lord and Savior, the Spirit comes and takes up residence in us and we ourselves become God's dwelling place where God dwells and where he establishes rule, the kingdom of heaven touches our hearts and touches our lives and the spirit lives in us. He, he uh, is the guarantor of the things to come. But we see at the baptism of Jesus too that the spirit also comes upon us and not only do we need the spirit to indwell us but to come upon us and you know, I think, well, how do we get that, Lord? And look, it's just simple. We just ask. You know, God, I need you to fill me with your spirit. God, I need you to clothe me, empower me with your spirit. And I think about it as just, just as we, we get up in the morning and we feed ourselves and we clothe ourselves, so too we need the same spiritual experience to feed ourselves with the, the bread of God's word and to say, God, clothe me with your spirit for this day. Zechariah the prophet said this, that it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And Luke tells us that the spirit after the baptism of Jesus at the Jordan drove him into the wilderness where he would be tempted and tested by the devil. And so we talked about this last week that Jesus' baptism, did he need to be baptized? No, he was sinless. Jesus was baptized so that he would be identified with us sinners. And now it's the same in his testing and his temptation. And so we'll take a look at this. And it's just a fact of life. I don't know if you find this, that often after blessing comes battle. You know that experience? Jesus had the blessing at the Jordan and now comes the battle. So let's, let's check this out. The king in conflict. Verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And as Luke tells us, he was driven by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, driven by the Spirit. And that's part of God's empowerment, that that's what his Spirit does, that he leads us and he drives us. And we want that same experience in our lives. And Jesus was led here into the wilderness to be tempted. I would say for two reasons, really. <coughs> to reveal who he was. For us, and also so that we would see how he relates to us. And in regards to that first one, to reveal who he was, well, maybe you read the pre-devotional I sent out. I was thinking about tests, you know. I, I, I've never been good at writing tests. It's just the truth, you know. You, in school, this, this, that. Tests are not my thing. Well, a test determines the quality of substance. So let's just say, put two and two together here. Not much substance. But this test is really about revealing who Jesus is and revealing the substance of who he is. And the word here that we read is translated temptation, but it can almost just as easily be translated to be tested. And the question is this, is the king with able to stand? We've seen him here, the revealed king. Is this king able to overcome and I think, well, could he have fallen? I mean, could Jesus have really fallen? And the answer is no. He could not have fallen. He couldn't have. 
If, if he could have been overcome by this sin and temptation, then it's just as simple. He is not a savior. But he needed to experience temptation like you and I did because he is the God-man. He, he came as the living God clothed in human flesh, clothed in humanity, and he had to experience the reality of what it was like to be clothed so that he could relate to us. And this test demonstrates that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. He's tested, and he's proven, and he's genuine. He's been called, we saw this in, actually in, in 1 Corinthians, that he's the last Adam. We consider the first Adam, there's a parallel here. In this story of Matthew to, to Genesis where Adam and Eve took the apple and they succumbed to temptation and they gave in to sin and they surrendered their lives to the, to the desires of their flesh. But here Jesus, the last Adam, is going to overcome sin. He's our great high priest. As he, we read in, in Hebrews. And he had to experience temptation so that he could relate to us. And the reality is, is this, is that we should read this story this morning and we should take hope in the face of temptation. When you're angry, when you want to murder someone. <laughs> that you can overcome through Christ. And in Hebrews chapter 4.15 it says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet was without sin. You know, I think about when Jesus was tested, but then when testing comes for you and I. You know, uh, the scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 13, that, that no temptation has seized you except that which is common to man, but God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up underneath it, under it. And the reality is this, is that temptation comes. That's a, that's a promise of the scripture. Temptation will come and testing will come. But when testing comes, I would say this, it, it comes for this reason. It's not that God so much sends temptation, but that God leads us into tests so that we will know what's inside of us. And it's twofold. You know, the problem is not God sending a test because he doesn't know what's in my heart. Look, God knows what's exactly, exactly what is in this heart. The problem is, is I don't always see what's in my own heart. Uh, both in regards to my willingness to enter into sin and also in regards to the empowerment of the spirit to be set free from temptation. And God leads us into places of testing and trial and temptation. He doesn't tempt us. But we can be led to those spots so that we discover what's in our own hearts. And temptation will come, but here's the thing. The Lord's promised this. We will not be tempted beyond what we can bear. I, I was tempted towards murder today. <laughs> Thank goodness the Lord by his spirit has allowed me to bear up underneath it. Otherwise, you know, off I went today. <laughs> there was a, there's a limit to the temptation that you and I experience, to the testing that we experience, but that's where Jesus' testing and temptation was different. 
And you need to see this. That for Jesus, there was no limit. This was the full out assault of Satan. No stops. No stops. This was testing on all points. You know, I, I, I've, the reality is this. Is you and I have never done business with the devil. The devil's real. I mean, we see this in this piece of scripture here that he is the tempter. He is old slewfoot, I like to refer to him as. The one who will trip you up, who will come against you. But the reality is this, is that Satan doesn't have time for little folks like you and I. We're too small a fish to fry. And I don't think any one of us has really had a true conflict with him. He sends his little minions to do his work, but not Jesus Jesus met the tempter himself and the scripture says that he was tested here at all points. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2 verse 18 says because he himself has suffered when tempted he is able to help those who are being tempted and we are not going to be tempted beyond what we can bear but for Christ there was no limit to the test. There was no limit to the test. And the scripture tells us, Jesus said this, that the thief comes to kill and to steal and destroy. That's his game plan. He's a liar. That's his character that is in him. And he came to take Jesus out. And so as this confrontation begins to happen, this conflict, this testing, this time of temptation, it's just remarkable to consider the contrast between chapter 3 and 4 here. You know, the cool waters of the Jordan to... The barren wilderness, the the desert place, the place where there is nothing to live on, no source of water and no food source. From the huge crowds around John the Baptist and all that was going there to the solitude and silence of the wilderness. From the spirit resting upon Jesus in the form of a dove to the spirit now driving him out into the wilderness. The voice of the father calling him the beloved son and now the tempter coming with his hiss and sly moves to take him down. He who was anointed is now attacked. The water of baptism to the fire of temptation. First the heavens open and now Jesus is somewhat led to hell you might say to be tempted in the wilderness. And so verse 1 again says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Yeah, I'll say. (laughs) Of course, there's the overshadow for us, 40 days and 40 nights. I mean, we maybe think of Moses, who twice had an experience of 40 days and 40 nights in the presence of God on top of Mount Sinai where the law came to him. And he First, those things were written down for him, and then the second time, he had to write them down himself after cracking the stones, the tablets. Or think of Elijah, who received food from God, and then he traveled 40 days and 40 nights into the wilderness where he fled. And here is Jesus, 40 days and 40 nights. Could you imagine? I just, it's just hard to fathom such a thing, to go that long without food. And... 
what's going on here is this, is that when you, when you, when you fast for 40 days and 40 nights, I've never attempted this, <laughs> but apparently what they report is this, is that your actual desire for food disappears, the sensation of hunger goes. And when it returns, you've reached a point of starvation now where the body has entered those final stages where it's saying, okay, it's time to start shutting down here. And so when we read here that Jesus was hungry, he's literally starving to death. He's, he's now physically the body is starting to shut down and there is a need for food. You know, we took the 40 days and 40 nights, we fasted for a, a one day the other the other week there during our week of prayer. And that was tough. But you know, fasting is a, fasting is a great practice. It, I would encourage you, uh, you know, to, to maybe bring it into your life as something that you regularly do. See, fasting is about this. It's about teaching the flesh, flesh a lesson. It's about teaching your physical body a lesson. It's about saying to your body, I don't live for you, stomach. You don't set the agenda here. The Holy Spirit sets the agenda. The Spirit of God is control over this body. I, I don't surrender to the flesh. I surrender my life to the Spirit. And so we use fasting as a practice whereby we discipline the flesh. We murder the flesh and we say, no, we're going to live for the things of the Spirit. And so Jesus, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And verse 3 says, and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. If you are the son of God. It sounds like it's a question, but it's not. It could also be translated since. Since, since you're the son of God, since that's what you are, let's prove it. Come on, Jesus, show us your game. Prove that you're the son of God. And he's, Satan was... You know, not calling into question the fact that Jesus was the Son of God. What, is he, what he's doing is he's challenging Jesus to demonstrate that he is God. And you think about Jesus, you know, the fact that he is sinless in his nature. This is the difference between Jesus and us and our dealings with temptation. Is that Jesus is sinless and I'm sinful. That I'm saved only by his grace. And the fact that he is sinless means this, that no temptation can arise from within himself. Temptation had to be presented to Jesus from the outside of himself. You and I have the dual problem of this. Temptation can be presented from the outside and our hearts are wicked and evil and they can lead us off into temptation where we succumb to sin and we give ourselves over to it. And so to a sinless nature, no, no temptation can arise within Jesus. It has to be presented from the outside. And he's tempted in the wilderness. We're going to see this picture here. Satan's going to take him to three different spots. The wilderness, uh, the temple, and then the mountain. And we've talked about the wilderness a number of times uh, in this new year, back when we were in uh, Psalm 107. Uh, last week we talked about John living in the wilderness and just that picture of barren lifelessness, without water, without sustenance, without the ability to survive. And, and here is Jesus in this spot, and he's hungry, and there is no option for food. There is no option. What are you going to eat? Dirt? There's nothing. 
And so Satan begins to appeal to what we would call the lust of the flesh. And he calls into question God's ability to provide. He calls into question the Father's ability to bring provision in our lives, to bring provision in the life of Jesus. And he says to Jesus, why don't you turn these stones into bread? It's interesting because in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist said this, that God can take these stones and he can raise out of them, what? Sons of Abraham. Satan doesn't say, raise sons of Abraham. So, I know you can do that. Let's, let's, it's more simple, Jesus. Just make bread. That's easy for you. You're hungry. Fulfill your appetite. Uh, you know, think about Jesus who later in his ministry will take loaves of bread and he'll feed 5,000. On another occasion, he'll feed 4,000. It's, it's not a question of skill and ability to do it, but what is in question that Satan is bringing in is for Jesus to question the working of the Spirit in his life. To question the Father's provision in his life. The, the question and the challenge from Satan is this, is Jesus, are you going to be dependent or are you going to show yourself who you are? And I think about that idea of independence versus dependence here because we're to live the dependent life upon the Spirit, upon the Word of God, which is our food, upon Jesus Christ, which puts living water in us spiritually. And, and yet in this culture is this pressure to live the independent life, to be the self-made man. But Christianity is not depend, independence. It's a dependent relationship upon God and what he can provide. And so Jesus, in the face of Satan's temptation, answered in verse 4, and he says this, it is written. Three times Jesus will say, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so Jesus meets the temptation of Satan with the word of God. We know that. Three times he will respond and he will use the sword of the spirit to take down the argument of the enemy. The, the enemy is his adversary. And Ephesians chapter 6, 17 says the word of God is the sword of the spirit. It's our, it is our weapon in the face of warfare with the evil one. And as we see this, I, I, you know, it's interesting Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy each time that he uh, battles with Satan here. Between chapter 6 and 8. And I, I almost think as I read this, I, I wonder if his quiet time was in Deuteronomy that week. Maybe that's where he was reading. Maybe that's where he had been uh, studying as he was preparing for ministry. But, you know, I don't know if you thought about Deuteronomy as a book of spiritual warfare. I think no, maybe that's the last one I want to read. You know, what good is Deuteronomy? Well, Jesus used Deuteronomy as a book for warfare. The words of Deuteronomy to meet the evil one. And I, I just think how important that we feast on God's word, that we know God's word, that we don't say, oh, I think God's word says this. No, Jesus said, it is written. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
Then Satan takes him to the temple. It says this in verse 5, Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem. And he set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. You hear uh, Satan takes Jesus to the temple and what he begins to question, the first time he questions God provis- God's provision and now he begins to question protection. Will God protect you? I mean, since you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Let's make a scene here, Jesus. I mean, God seems to have this plan where you're going to quietly come on the scene here. No, let's not do that. Let's... Let's make this a little more dramatic, man. Let's, let's, let's have a show here. Throw yourself off the temple, man. God will send his angels. They'll, they'll catch you. I mean, it'll be, this will be an appearing in Jerusalem and everybody will know. You're the, you're the king who was to come and you are the son of God. And it's as though, you know, Satan all the way through here in a sense is tempting Jesus to avoid the work of the cross to avoid suffering, to question God's protection. Man, you can, you can expose yourself and reveal who you are as the son of God without having to go to the cross. But we know the reality is this, is that there is no Christianity without the cross. And interesting in this particular temptation is that Satan takes the word of God and he twists the word of God to... Get his point across to Jesus. We know that Satan did the same thing with Eve. He just, did God really say? He just called into question God's word. And and Satan here takes the 91st Psalm, Psalm 91, and he just leaves something out. He leaves out that God will direct your ways. He calls into question the fact of God's protection. And I think that it's, It's so interesting that he takes Jesus to the temple. Now from from the the wilderness to the place that really was the throne of God. Where we talked about this, where where the Ark of the Covenant sat that represented the throne of God. He takes him to this place that was the religious center, the the place that was the, the center of sacrifice and worship and relationship with God. And he says, whoa this spiritually awesome place, not the wilderness. Okay, forget the wilderness. Let's go to the place where everybody knows you're going to meet with God. Reveal yourself here. And in a sense, this, this particular temptation appeals to the pride of life that, is in, that can be in the human heart. To expose yourself, to want to be up front, to want to be at the center. Reveal yourself in a dramatic fashion, and let's forget this whole suffering servant thing. And Jesus said to him, verse 7, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Testing God. I was thinking about uh, fishing as I was, this text is going to talk about fishing later, and this is something that I'm growing in appreciation of over the years as I get a little older. And our church camp, you know, going fishing. And Darcy and I had all these wonderful plans this year to catch all these fish. And so 
I had my rod and I said, Darcy, I got 15 pound test. Do you think that's enough? He said, no, it ain't enough, man. We're going for the big ones this year. Anyways, I, I upgraded, but 15 pounds would have done it. <laughs> Next year, Darcy. He's downstairs. There he is. Okay. Amen, brother. Testing, man. 15 pound test. You know, when Jesus says this, and the word of God says this, we shall not put God to the test. You know what it is? It's, it's this. It, we, we put God to the test. We say, God, I don't trust your protection. Who is Satan calling into question here? Your protection. You know, God has established his law as a guidebook, as the roadmap, his word as a path for our life. And we say, God, what do you know about protecting me? I know better. I'm going this way. And we put God to the test. We, 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 we push him into a box. We say, we, we expose ourselves. We say, well, okay, if, if that's the way you want to go, then I'll, I'll leave you to yourself. And the word of God says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And the question for us is always this in the face of temptation. Do I, do I trust God's protection? Do I trust his protection? And from the first temptation, do I trust his provision for me? Do I trust his provision? Do I trust his protection? Then Satan takes Jesus to be tempted on the mountain. Verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Interesting, Jesus taken to the top of the mountain. I don't know how this worked, but somehow the kingdoms of the world were flashed before his eyes. Satan appealed to the lust of the flesh. He appealed to the pride of the life. And now he appeals to the lust of the eyes. And he flashes before Jesus' eyes all of these kingdoms of the world on a mountaintop. I just think of that picture. It's this place of perspective. It's a, it's a place, you know, mountaintop spiritual experiences that are so awesome. It seems to be this great spot. And the kingdoms of the world are flashed before his eyes. And it's as though in this one that uh, as Satan appeals to the lust of the eyes, he calls into question the promise of God. Are you really going to have all these kingdoms? Sure. Well, actually, you can have them, Jesus. You can have them. Just fall down and worship me, and, and you can have them. And Satan was offering the kingdoms of the world really without suffering. He's saying to Jesus, you don't have to suffer. You can have a shortcut. You don't need redemption. You don't need to redeem these people. I'll give it to you. You can have it. Just fall down and worship me. And it reminds me of the second psalm that says this. It's a prophetic psalm, Psalm 2. It says, I will tell you the decree of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Reminiscent, it sounds like, Matthew chapter 3, you are my beloved son with whom I well please. And then verse 8 of Psalm 2 says this, the father speaking, ask of me 
And I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And you shall break them with a rod of iron and you shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Look, the father said, had said of his son, you're my beloved son, now you ask of me and I'll give you the nations. But Satan says, Jesus, you worship me and I'll give you the nations. And we might think, well, did Satan have the right to make such an offer? It's interesting that Jesus does not oppose him. He doesn't say, you can't make that offer. You don't have that right. If Satan didn't have the right, Jesus would have said that. I'm sure of it in this story. Jesus did not oppose what Satan said. And it reminds us of the fall that Adam, and Adam is as God's creation was given dominion over the earth, to rule over the earth. He was to subdue it and to subdue the creatures and to rule over them. And we know that in the garden, when he and Eve made a decision to rebel against God, they surrendered their dominion. They surrendered their rule and they essentially handed over the title deed of the earth to Satan. And so Satan here at this point is in, in total, totally in the right to make the offer to Jesus. Even as we look around the world today, do we see Jesus ruling? We know the kingdom of heaven is still at hand, that there is, there is a spiritual rule happening. Where the king is present, there the kingdom is present, and there the rule of God is happening. He's ruling here, I hope, in your life. But over the nations, he's guiding and he's directing, but not with an iron rod yet. Not with, as we read in Psalm 2, uh, the rod of iron where he dashes them like a potter's vessel and the day is coming. Remember last week, he's come as a lamb. He'll come as a lion. And when he does, he'll come with the rod of iron and he will dash the nations to pieces and he will rule. And Satan had the right to make the offer. And it's interesting that Jesus responded to him and he says, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Again, all of the scripture quoted by Jesus comes from Deuteronomy. A book of spiritual warfare. And this reply in particular is from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. You shall worship the Lord your God, and you will serve him only. It's interesting that Satan actually said nothing about serving. He said, all you got to do is worship me. Just bow down and worship me and I'll give these things to you. And Jesus said, you worship and you serve God only. And the reason why Jesus responded to that is because, uh, responded in that way is because Jesus knew that worship and service go together. That that which you worship, you will serve. You look at the things that you serve, they reveal that which you worship. What do you serve? Who do you serve? It reveals the worship of your heart. And Jesus said, you shall worship the Lord your God and you only shall serve him. And so Satan comes and in this testing and in this temptation, he calls into question three things. God's provision, his protection, his promise. He appeals to the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, and the lust of the eyes. He says to Jesus and 
the evil one would say the same thing. He sends his minions to say the same thing to us. Where is your father's provision? Just jump, man. Don't wait for him. He said he'd provide. You don't need to wait for him. You make it happen yourself. You jump in there. His word says this. Yeah, you know, you don't got to wait. Just go make it happen. God says honor him in this way or that way. No, 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 no. You don't need to do that. You don't need to honor, I don't know, marriage. You don't need to honor this. You don't need to honor that. You just jump ahead of God because what does he know about provision? Or do you doubt your father's protection? Yeah, he's, he's not really interested in protecting you. He's not. You know, you, you need to make moves yourself because he's not looking out for your best. Or he leads us to the place where we despair the promise. So, oh, can I take God at his word? Can I, can I trust his promises? And so Satan is always in temptation seeking to lead God's people to the place where they call into question his, his provision, his protection, and his promise. And I gotta say this about Jesus, that we see here that Jesus is victorious where Adam failed. You know, I think about that whole Genesis account and Adam and Eve succumbing to the temptation of the evil one. And we know in that story that Eve was right there. That, that Adam had moved to the background and he had left his wife to fend for our, herself. And rather than stepping up and protecting her and speaking on her behalf, he just left her to take the lead and he participated and though she ate of the fruit first, Adam was right there and didn't protect his wife. And I love the picture here that who do we see as victorious? Here is Jesus. And what does he say of his church? That she's my bride. And Jesus is victorious where Adam fell. Where Adam dropped the ball and he did not protect his wife, Jesus steps in and he takes the lead. And he stands against the schemes of the devil. And as we think about this, Jesus was not tempted so that the father could learn something about the son. He wasn't trying to expose what's in Jesus' heart. The father had already given divine approval. You are my son. With, with you I am well pleased, my beloved son. Jesus was tempted. Jesus underwent this temptation that the spirit led him into so that every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth would know that Jesus is the conqueror over sin and temptation. That he is the victor. And he exposed Satan and he exposed his tactics and he defeated him. And it's awesome that we can come to this text and we can see the tactics of the evil one. And because of Jesus' victory, we can have victory. We can have victory. And so in verse 11 we read this. Then the devil left him. Behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Other gospels tell us that the devil left until a more opportune time. Uh, neat picture. The, the angels began to minister to him. I don't know. We don't get any more than that. Is he still on the mountaintop? Uh, maybe. I don't know. Really cool. 
Let's jump up to verse 12. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and he lived in Capernaum by the sea in the ter territory of Zebulun by Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and in the shadow of death, on them light has dawned. Matthew's account of the gospel, we mentioned this early on in the series, is logical. It's not chronological. He's building an argument. He's taking us somewhere. He wants us to see that, king, that Jesus is king. He's King Jesus. That the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so Matthew avoids some of the in-between stories. But we know this. Jesus went back to Nazareth and what happened there? That he was rejected. That he taught in the synagogue and he was rejected and they drove him out of the town and they sought to throw him out of the cliffs. And so it was from that time on, we pick up here in Matthew, that Jesus went to Capernaum. Beautiful little town, beautiful little spot on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. I'd like to live there. Actually, Capernaum kind of reminds me of our area. If you ever wonder, and you go, man, I wonder what it's like. Kind of reminds me of this area. Like if you, look, if you were at Langdale and you looked across to the, to the North Shore Mountains, that's about the distance across the Sea of Galilee. Pretty, pretty little area. And, and Capernaum means this. It means the town of Nahum. Nahum the prophet. This is where Nahum came from. And uh, actually Luke chapter 14, or chapter 4 verse 14 says this, that, that Jesus returned after his temptation, he returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and that the report about him began to go out throughout the surrounding uh, country, and it says that he was in Galilee of the Gentiles. They're doing, doing ministry and beginning this work, and I guess the question might be is, why not Jerusalem? I mean, when you think about Jerusalem, where the temple was, where all the religious establishment was, I mean, like the cool kids hung out in Jerusalem. That's just how it was, and Jesus went to Galilee to begin his ministry, Isaiah said, to people dwelling in darkness, to a region that lives in the shadow of death. It's interesting that, um, uh, you know, you don't have to put up with this for a little while, for a few weeks. We're going to talk about trip to Israel. And when you go to Israel, one of the things that's super fascinating and fascinating in regards to the geopolitics, political stuff of the world is this, is that Galilee is very susceptible because it sits at the foot of the Golan Heights. And so back in the days of before Israel gained current land that it has now, those who lived in the Galilee were subject to constant bombings from Syria because Syria had a high point above the area. And so in regards to Israel's protection, the Golan Heights is extremely important. It's extremely strategic for them to protect their populace within the Galilee and the Jordan Valley. And it's interesting here that, that even Isaiah said, these are people that live in the shadow of death. Because when the Assyrians came, when the Babylonians came, when the Midianites came, when whoever it was that came, how did they get to the land of Israel? They first came through the Galilee. And they'd reap destruction there. 
And Galilee had become an area, because of all of these things, because of their time in exile and coming back, Galilee had been and become an area where, in the time of Jesus, it was very mixed. Gentiles and, and Jews, and there was uh, many hundreds of small communities. Uh, and Jews and, and Gentiles had intermixed, and they were trying to sort out what it lived like to live together, kind of like, in Israel today now. And this was a place where there was darkness. Where there was worship of other gods. Where there was danger against foreign armies. And Jesus went to Galilee of the Gentiles. That's what it was called. And he went to the people who were outcasts. And it says in verse 17 that from that time on he began to preach. Saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we see this about Jesus. We're going to see just a little bit more slightly on in this text here. He was a preacher, a proclaimer, and he taught the same message as John the Baptist. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent means turn away from your sin, and it's, it's more than just being sorry. It's a decision of heart and mind where we say, I'm turning from my sin, and I'm turning in faith to the Savior. And Jesus taught about the kingdom of heaven. Matthew's gospel, more than any other gospel, talks about the kingdom of heaven 32 times. He says, kingdom of heaven. And it's important because we, said, we introduced the book of Matthew this way, that Matthew's gospel is a Jewish gospel. It's written primarily to a Jewish audience. It's the kingdom of heaven. What about the kingdom of Israel? We're interested in the kingdom of Israel. And Jesus came, no, I'm interested in the kingdom of heaven. I've come for Jew and for Gentile. That's why it was so important that his ministry began there amongst the, the, the places and the communities where they were living together. And so he began to teach this same message of John where repentance makes straight the highway for the king. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 18 says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. I love this part of the text. Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and they were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a boat with Zebedee, their father, mending the nets. And he called them. And immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Other gospels fill in the gap here. You know, you read this story and you think, what? That's it? Follow me? They pack up and they leave everything? And it's like that? And I'm like, what's, what's wrong with me, man? Don't you think that when you read this? That's what I think. I think, what's wrong with me? But the fact of the matter is that the other gospels fill in the gap that these men, this isn't just their first encounter with Jesus. Some of these men had been involved with following John the Baptist. They'd been counted amongst his disciples. Then they went and they began to follow Jesus when he came on the scene. There was an existing relationship here. And the other gospels tell us that in between this time, Jesus actually made a trip to Jerusalem and then he came back to the Galilee. And when he did... He called these men and he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. 
That word follow in the Greek is in the imperative. And what that means grammatically in Greek is this, is that it's not an invitation, but it's a command. We always read that in our English and we think that's an invitation. Follow me, you know, sing some song and we're going to make a decision. We're going to follow Jesus. And, and you know, I, I want to ask you this. Did, do you really think that Jesus invited you to follow him or did he command you to follow him? You know, I, I, I think about that and I, I think, What's the difference in my life if that word follow me and I will make you a fisher of men is a command rather than an invitation? You know, I I often think this about the kingdom, that the kingdom, you're born into the kingdom. Just like you were born into your family, you're born into the kingdom, an infant in Christ. Uh, A work of, you're, you're, The old is past and the new is coming. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. You're born into the kingdom. But you're made into a fisher of men. Being a fisher of men is not an inherent right of being born into the kingdom. It's something that Christ is working to make us. We're becoming that. We're going in that direction. And I I think to myself, well, you know, I came to Jesus by choice. There was an invitation. But you know, the longer I know Jesus, my sense of choice seems to disappear. <laughs> and I mean, you, you can have this whole argument about free will and sovereignty of God and all that stuff. Look at I don't put myself in either one of those camps and I don't believe the Bible teaches to put yourself in either one of those camps. I believe in them both. And I made a decision to follow Jesus and Jesus commanded me to follow him. And sometimes it feels like I'm making the decision and other times it feels like it's a command and I better stink an answer right now. You ever feel like that? And my sense of choice almost seems to disappear the longer I know Christ. And it's not that I don't have a choice, it's more this, how could I not? I mean, in light of you, Jesus, how could I not? It's like baptism. We talked about this last week. Jesus entered the waters for me. So therefore, how could I not enter the waters for him? How could I not? And as we think about that that follow me, the question is, how could we not? In light of all that he's done for us. And Jesus wants to make us fishers of men. It's a construction term. He's going to form us and fashion us. He's the potter. He works with his clay. He's a carpenter. And he wants to make us fishers of men. And we enter the kingdom by birth, but we're made into fishers of men. And to me, that implies process, that there's time. There's work involved. There means, it means, you know, participation on my part. As the clay in the hand of the potter, I need to make sure I'm soft. That my heart is in the right place so that he can mold and fashion me and make me into what he wants. Follow me? How could we not? 
I love that Jesus calls these brothers, two sets of brothers, Peter and Andrew, bros, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. We know that as the 12 formed and Jesus built his relationship with them, that, that Peter, James, and John were the inner three amongst the 12, and John was the, was the one who was real close. It seems as you read the Gospels that John was the youngest of the whole group. And, uh, you know, it's interesting as you think about these guys is that their, their role in the kingdom seems to reflect the work that they did in the world. You know, I think about Andrew and Peter, when, when Jesus called them, it says they were casting their nets. They were throwing out the nets. And Jesus said, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And as we watch the development of Peter and Jesus constructing him and forming him, and discipling him over that process of three years. When the day of Pentecost came, and in Acts chapter 2 we read, who was it that stood up and cast a net? It was Peter. And thousands were saved. James and John are interesting in the sense that amongst the disciples, James was the first to be martyred, and John was the only one that lived to a life of old age. Everyone else was martyred. James gone first, and John lived out his life into, well into, I think it's his 90s John lived into, uh, preaching the gospel. And James and John were there and they were mending the nets. And John went on, he was called the, the apostle of love. I think about his writings, John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. He's a mender of nets amongst the church. And these men... Peter and Andrew and James and John, they left everything to follow Jesus. And verse 23 says this, And he, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction amongst the people. Three parts to Jesus' ministry we see here. Teaching in the synagogues, preaching, proclaiming the gospel, and thirdly, healing. You don't read much actually about Jesus teaching in the synagogues in the Gospels. Not very much. Giving instruction, holding discourse, teaching doctrine, you know, opening up the scroll and being the teacher and laying down principles and precepts of the kingdom. Gospels don't tell us a lot about him doing that. But he was going all throughout the Galilee where there was hundreds of communities and going to the synagogue and teaching the word of God. He was proclaiming, we're going we're gonna to get to uh, Matthew chapter 5 next week where he begins the manifesto of the kingdom. Three chapters where he, he preaches the value of the kingdom and Jesus was moving throughout the countryside. Proclaiming the kingdom. Announcing as a herald the kingdom. Stimulating hearts. And then... So awesome about Jesus' ministry. Healing, authenticating his message. Manifestations of the Spirit working through his life as he, there was an outworking to the teaching and preaching and the sick were healed. Actually, verse 24 says this, that so his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those affected with various diseases, pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And as we read about Jesus, the, the crowds were coming from greater and greater distance. All the land of Syria, it says, 
from the north. And Jesus was healing. There was nothing that he wasn't healing. The demon possessed, those who couldn't walk, that were lame, that were paralyzed, those, those who had diseases and pains and all of these things, he touched them. And I love the word there in verse 24 that says, so his fame spread. He was becoming known. You know, as a church, we should be concerned about fame. Not our fame. Concerned about the fame of King Jesus. That he would be known. And to him was brought those sick and afflicted. Because it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And he touched them with his presence and he healed them. And verse 25 says, Great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. The Decapolis is a, a group of 10 cities that was in the Galilee, the 10 largest communities. And so people were coming from all over and the ministry of Jesus right here at the onset just begins to grow leaps and bounds. I mean, more than that of John the Baptist. We read last week about how crowds were coming to him, but now this is bigger. This is bigger. The fame is spreading. Where John taught the message and he baptized, Jesus is teaching the message and he's healing. And people are leaving everything to follow him and the crowds are coming from greater and greater distances to hear the message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. My friends, as we just consider this, this text, I might ask you this morning, are you questioning God's provision? Are you questioning his protection? Are you questioning his promise? Jesus can meet all of those things and the Father will honor himself and his name. I'll tell you this, if there's one thing you can be concerned about is not protection, promise, or provision, but be concerned about the fame of Jesus Christ. Live for his fame and he'll take care of those things. Amen? Let's pray this morning. Would you guys stand with me? I'm gonna invite the worship team to come.